Hello, and welcome to episode 31 of the MBA podcast. Today, the MedTechSperts welcome Dr. Mark Adelman, CMO at Synantec CRO in New York City. Dr. Adelman and the host discuss the impact of the financial deficits in the global hospital environment, the trickle down to staffing, and what hospital administration needs to hear when you're bringing them new technology. Let's listen in. Well, good day, everybody, and welcome to another fantastic and special edition of the MedTech Business Academy podcast. Uh, we're blessed today with our a very special guest, uh, Dr. Mark Adelman, who's joining us uh, with 40 plus years of healthcare experience in the surgical field. And we'll talk a little bit more about Dr. Adelman's background in one, one, in one second. Uh, with that, I do want to introduce our co-host and our panelists today. Uh, it's Barbara Strain, Mike Spraduti, Scott Alexander, and Tom Hickey. Uh, all have very cutting edge questions uh, for, <laughs> for Dr. Adelman. Uh, Dr. Adelman did tell me that he has experience working with actual um uh interviewers so he's challenged us to try and trip him up even more <laughs> so we'll try we'll try to see what we can do compared to uh the diane sawyers and katie Couric's of the world dr adelman uh but let me uh let me get right into introducing him so we can get right to our questions and discussions uh, dr mark adelman was the endowed chair and frank j veith professor tenured and Chief of the Division of Vascular and Endovascular Surgery at NYU Langone Medical Center until 2018. After receiving his undergraduate degree in biology from the University of Virginia, he completed his medical school residency and fellowship training at New York University School of Medicine. As an endowed tenured professor, Dr. Adelman originally joined the faculty in 1991, was named Chief of the Division of Vascular Surgery in 2006, and assumed the role of Vice Chairman of Strategy and Business Development for the Department of Surgery in 2013. He's published nearly 150 peer-reviewed manuscripts, is well-recognized by the media for his contributions in vascular disease, and has been an innovator in the endovascular treatment of venous, carotid, and uh, aortic diseases. He holds three U.S. and international patents for surgical instrumentation. After retiring from clinical practice, he served as chief medical officer at a large multinational CRO and is now co-chairman of two large vascular symposia serving international audiences. And we are blessed today to have Dr. Mark Edelman join us. Mark, thank you very much. Thanks, Gunnar. Absolutely. So we're going to get right into it. The, the first question that I think our audience wants to know just from a general perspective is, what are the key challenges that you're hearing and seeing today uh, that physicians are, uh, are faced with as it relates to just healthcare in general? So it's a, it's a great question. And, and what's happened, uh, and this is on a global basis. So as you mentioned, I, I have an international uh, connection uh, really on a daily basis with some of my colleagues over all around the world, you know, all the way from Poland, East, East Europe, uh, all the way down through South America. And um, uh and, and it's really a global issue that we're dealing with, and it has to do with the same thing that we all know about, which is probably precipitated by COVID, which is the lack of budget or the lack of inflow, financial inflows coming into the hospital system. So that impacts the hospital system in a, a number of ways, which we all can, can expect, which is number one, staffing. Uh, we, we can't staff all our operating rooms, all our ICUs. When I say we, I'm talking about the whole world, every hospital that I know about around the world. Uh, um, 
I obviously I don't know of every hospital, but the ones I speak to. And so, the, so they're having uh, cases canceled, surgical cases canceled uh, every day because there's no place to put the patients after surgery. So um, nursing has become a huge issue and that spiraled down into the idea that these, that the uh, vocation of a traveling nurse, where you'll, if you work 30 miles from your home, you're considered traveling, uh, are getting uh, paid two and three times what the hospital salaries are. So everyone's starting to travel. And so the hospital itself can't really function uh, within its own budget without hiring traveling nurses, which then impacts the budget dramatically. That's one piece. The second piece is also budgetary, which is a, a very big reluctancy to bring in anything new, any any a new cost item into the cost center, whether that's uh, human resources or whether that's technology. So the idea is unless it's going to be groundbreaking technology, um, they're already operating on the break-even line or even in the red, most hospitals right now. And so they're very reluctant to want to bring in uh, new technology to on, on the basis of science or on the basis of teaching or on the basis of anything besides revenue. So those are the biggest uh, uh, impediments I'm seeing these days. So a large part of medicine is predicated on innovation. So what what's the what's the position of healthcare today if we're not going to invest money into those new innovations? I mean, how how are we going to how are we going to progress? Yeah. So so it's starting to be more and more of a partnership um, where industry is now starting to talk about. Uh, well, they have always uh, talked about partnering with hospitals and saying, hey, we're, we're willing to give you technology for free for a certain period of time or a certain number of devices or whatever the metric may be, uh, um, just to get it on the, on the shelf and get people experience with it and to get it to people's hands. And, uh, and that was not the case, uh, many years ago where there was, you know, they may give you a trial, a trial device to get it in your hands and see if you want to bring more in. Uh, but now it's starting to be more of a partnership, and I'm actually involved in a in a, uh, a startup company in neurosurgical navigation, and we're doing that actually. Where you know, people don't want to bring our device into their hospital, so we're now bringing it in for free. It's a big it's a big infrastructure to bring in, uh, not uh, capital, but it's more just uh, time consuming from a human resources and also from a cloud computing and support point of view. But we're willing to bring that in for free just to try to get it into people's hands. So it's, it's um. It's still not the problem is not solved. You know, we're still we're still in a deficit situation, I believe, in most hospitals, and uh, it's it's still not there. So when you talk about this revenue problem, so this revenue problem did not exist before COVID. Uh, no, not in most places. I mean, obviously, there were certain uh, hospital systems that were always having trouble with cash flow, uh, and and some of those went under. Uh, but for the most part. There are very few states. So, for instance, Maryland was uh, operating on a max 2% uh, margin for all hospitals everywhere. So even great hospitals like Johns Hopkins were still running on a 2% margin. But otherwise, great management, just like any business, great management uh, could bring big margins, you know, 10 or 20% margins uh, with the same reimbursement structure that you're getting from other, you know, from, from the insurance payers, Medicare and private payers. Uh, so, no, it really wasn't. It was kind of a... Um, it was a very um, enriching environment in terms of uh, uh, bringing in any new staff you need to bring in, any new uh, devices you need to bring in. And um, uh, the idea, you know, of course, you need to present a business plan to administration and prove to them or, or at least posit to them, posit to them that they would see 
ultimately a financial benefit from this and for charity for the most part uh they do want to be able to make money but the shortfall in the revenue is that because of reimbursement cuts or is that because people are just not going to the hospital as much anymore so initially in, in COVID, it was it was the for, it was the latter. It was people weren't going to the hospital, so people were having strokes and heart attacks at home, as you've read in the news. Uh, uh, but ultimately, it's the same problems that we were having at the uh, Dairy Queen. You know, they can't get labor. You know, they just can't staff. They can't staff the uh, recovery rooms. They can't staff the ICUs with nurses. Uh, doctors are coming in. Doctors are are, are still want to work. Uh, but you know, I, I was just talking to a friend of mine today in Buffalo, University of Buffalo. He's a surgeon there and, and the d- director of a five hospital system. And he's saying, I, when I come to work in the morning, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to do my cases because I don't know if I'm going to have OR nurses. I don't know if I'm going to have uh, PACU nurses. I don't know if I'm going to have ICU nurses. So I can all of a sudden just have a free day, which is obviously very disappointing to him and his patients. Uh, so it's really a, a labor issue. Interesting. Is this a, uh, in your opinion, is this a temporary issue or is this more of a systemic change that we're seeing that's going to persist? I think it's going to write itself uh, that that ultimately, you know, the market markets are efficient in my view uh, most of the time. And so I think that the market is going to have to ultimately, you know, reach, reach in and to uh, start paying the labor that they need to, to run a full full hospital at 110% capacity all the time uh, without having people leave every month for a higher paying job down the street. Uh, the, the, obviously, the impediment to that is going to be healthcare reimbursement. So if there's no money coming in, then it's hard to jack, jack people's salaries up by 100% or 200% if they don't have the revenue coming in. So, that, so to me, this is going to write itself, but it's going to also involve the insurance reimbursement side of this to be able to put fuel into the system to be able to pay it into the labor that labor that needs to be hired uh, to be able to staff the hospitals appropriately, or it's going to go the other way, I guess, which is that so many hospitals are going to close due to lack of uh, going, you know, uh, being underwater. That ultimately there isn't going to be such a great job market, and they won't have to pay so much for people because there's going to be an abundance of staff. Uh, but but I think it's going to write itself. It's 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 self limiting. We can already see the tide starting to turn back the other way. It's already better than it was a year ago. Yeah, that's good. I mean, you you got to think about too. There's been uh, even in this period of time since you know March of 2020, we've seen a significant downturn in procedural volumes, particularly on the uh, elective side. And yet, I don't know. I don't know how it is in in New York. I'm here in St. Louis, and man, it's like everybody and their cousin is building a new tower. And right. um, you know, to some degree, we're going to have we're going to have to see that uh, capacity side right itself as well as we think about well, how much care can we actually deliver, and why are we building another hospital versus leveraging what's out there? But just- well, exactly right, and and uh, some of my colleagues, so so the NHS in the UK is trying to attack this exact ex- exact piece that you're talking about, mm-hmm. and um, you know, you can micro I can micro uh, drop it down to the aortic disease, and uh, they are designating aortic centers you know maybe i think there are 12 very few there are like 12 major aortic centers in the uk uh maybe 15 it's very small and um if they, it's a country 50 50 million people so it's uh uh now it the country lends itself to this because everyone who's in the nhs is getting paid salary not not based on their surgical volume but based on um seniority and other other metrics besides surgical volume so if someone says okay you can't do the same number of surgeries you did last year it's okay you're still getting paid the same 
you know, in this country, of course, most reimbursement systems, whether it's RVUs or whether it's P&Ls, are, uh, are, are, are somehow based on productivity. And uh, so it's hard to tell people I'm reducing your product. I'm reducing your productivity because I'm sending it down the street to the uh, center of excellence. You know, can, can you just expound upon that? Because I feel like fundamentally when I talk to a number of people in med tech, they don't necessarily understand. It, it's easy for private practice. I think they get it for private practice physicians and understanding, okay, you, know, you do a procedure, you get some reimbursement. But when you get to the employment level, I don't think they necessarily understand that RVU and P&L. Can you just backtrack that? I think it'd be a good... Understand yeah, the, well, yeah. I, can, I can give you a half hour, but I won't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, uh, RVRVUs, which is resource-based relative value units, is oftentimes a metric of reimbursement. And what that means is that, um, I'll try to do this in one or two sentences, uh, it is the idea that uh, everything has a relative value. So whether it's a, a flu shot going all the way up to a thoracoabdominal aortic repair, that has a relative value. So let's say a flu shot has a value of one, a thoracoabdominal aortic repair might have a value of 75. And um, and then assigned to those RVUs, research, uh, relative value units is a dollar amount. Um, that's, that's a reimbursement amount assigned by Medicare or by another payer. And then that money gets fed into the hospital system, which then gets transferred to the provider. So, uh, so if you're someone who's given a lot of flu shots, it might take you a week to give 75 flu shots and do one aorta. Uh, and so there's, so the RV, and there's a lot of malleability to the RVU system in terms of, um, geographic, geographic differentiation, uh, and, uh, training that goes into it. But the idea that the RVUs, um, uh, most, many hospital systems, university hospital systems are dealing on an RVU system and, um, and you get RVUs for seeing patients, RVUs for doing procedures, RVUs for, you don't get RVUs for teaching or publishing, and that's a big thing too. So it kind of detracts from the academic side. In terms of the PL side, the profit and loss side, uh, also many uh, hospitals are dealing with, specifically like most normal businesses, uh, a profit and loss look at what the provider is doing. So if you're a guy that's getting paid a thousand dollars a year and you're doing three thousand dollars worth of work, uh, then you're a valued guy and you're bringing in three x your salary, and that's that's helpful. Uh, but obviously the contrary exists as well. So uh, the way our system worked uh, at NYU is a hybrid system. In, in, in vascular surgery, we were on a P&L system uh, versus um, most of the other departments were on uh, RVU systems. So you get paid a certain number uh, of dollars per RVU delivered to the hospital system. But that, as I mentioned, detracts from the academics and the research and the innovation uh, because all you need to do is crank out RVUs. And when you got two kids in college, that starts to take priority. So, so Mark, you know, you mentioned earlier some of the costs, uh, you know, from staffing, you know, traveling nurses, uh, all of those, uh, you know, inputs. Uh, but at the same time, we're, we're seeing, you know, some challenges with uptake in technology. So I'm wondering, you know, your take on some of the uh, items like artificial intelligence for like the signals in like the CRM, right? To, hey, watch this patient, you know, they could be a candidate for, uh, you know, delirium, let's say. Um, what is your take on some of that? Because it seems like folks are still very skeptical of those types of devices yet. Are they starting to prove themselves or we do we still need some time for some of those? No, I think they're really, I, so I I uh, do some consulting work in that area. So, uh, so I'm very um, 
I feel I feel that I'm pretty um, informed in that area, and it is clear to me that. Um, so you're asking, I guess I'm going to answer it in two, in two ways. So one is you're asking is you know, to the, to the hospital administrators and the people that are the bean counters get it or, and second or, or primarily to the doctors get it. Is there, is there, a, do they see a clinical need for it? Uh, and then is it going to be worth it? Is it going to show, show profit? So in my mind, there is just no doubt that the AI component is, um, is a huge time saver and, and a, uh, and probably in certain areas has already been proven to be more accurate than, than human, than the human brain. So we all know in radiology, uh, that the AI is better at picking up lesions than the human eye. And so, uh, uh, and that's going to continue on. And as you point out, there's going to be certain metrics or series of metrics that'll show up in the EMR that are going to, uh, uh, present themselves. And the AI is going to be able to say, okay, he's got condition A, condition B, you know, let's call it blood pressure, glucose. You know, and and uh, lipids or something, and this guy is at risk for myocardial event, uh, you know, a, a coronary event, and that's going to be uh, a huge money saver for the hospital. So, I think one of the things that um, everyone needs to realize, mostly the clinicians who are who want to like they like their patients, they want their patients to do well. They have to recognize that the administrators need to show profit, you know, or need to show an, at least a non-loss, and so um, it, it can't be that uh, clinicians or industry comes to hospital administration and says, uh, hey, this is really cool. You got to see this. This is unbelievable. Uh, it's really amazing. They don't want to know about that. They want to they see the business plan on an Excel spreadsheet about how this is going to save them money. Like we're going to have 12% fewer heart attacks. We're going to have 8% fewer readmissions, you know, all based on metrics that we can follow either remotely or in the hospital. Um, uh, there's a, there's a, an AI system uh, that I just read about in the news, and I have no experience with it, where it's going to listen to your conversation with your patients in the in the uh, uh, clinic, and it's going to construct a progress note that's going to go into the EMR for you to edit first. So it'll show you the note first, and then you get a chance to edit it, and then load it into the EMR. So you so rather than sit there for 15 or 30 minutes typing in a uh, uh, a note, it's going to listen to you and come up with a with all the pertinence of a note. So that's going to be extremely valuable, both um, both in terms of picking up new information about patients, which may be the um, uh, canary in the mind for what's going, what might happen to them in the future, but also just a time saver for the clinician that's delivering care and saying, oh, gee, I, you know, I only need to edit this note. It's going to take me five minutes. I don't need to spend 15 minutes writing the note. So, right. so I think AI has already proven itself. And when you talk, when you look at some of what the AI uh, companies are doing now. Uh, we haven't even seen generations two, three, and four yet, which, which they have in their in their closet. Yeah, doctor. If, if we were to broaden the conversation past AI and just talk about, you know, you'd mentioned that it, you know it's difficult right now because of the environment with budget and staffing to even look at new products and new innovation. But should that innovation be able to reduce the need for clinical labor to save time to make more efficiencies? That's something I would imagine all day long you'd be willing to look at and people would be looking to invest in if it provided the right data and solutions, as you mentioned. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, I mean, we can go back to radiology as an example, which is if, you, if you're a chest radiologist that comes in in the morning and you've got 100, 100 films to read from the night before, uh, and AI has already picked out the, the top six that are most likely to demonstrate cancer or bleeding or something like that. 
and you can look at those six right away and expedite care right away. And it can show you the, uh, you know, show you the bottom 50 of which there's no pathology. You don't even have to look at those. You can just say, based on AI, I signed off on these. Uh, it's going to be a, a huge, uh, a huge advantage in terms of productivity. And so, then Dr. Edelman, yeah. so we talked a little bit, you, you said value, you talk about groundbreaking, things like that. We haven't painted a real rosy picture for our med tech industry audience that might be listening in. So what sort of advice can you give them? What should they be really focusing on now? And how do they really look at you know, reading tea leaves about bringing value to organizations like the providers and things that you've worked for? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, and I think it, it harkens back to something I was mentioning earlier, which is the idea that um, that you know, we always talk about in, in terms of value, is it going to is it going to increase um, accuracy in patient care or, uh, or is it going to be, uh, uh, less expensive? Two easy metrics to try to analyze, you know. So, uh, device A is, uh, deployed. Let's call it a cardiovascular device because that's what I'm used to. Mm -hmm. So it's deployed with an accuracy, uh, of uh, 96%, but the, um, and device B is, uh, deployed an accuracy of 80% has to be reintervened. Obviously. We're going with the 96% one. Uh, if, if the same device is also 10% uh, less expensive, so those are easy. Like we all, we can all do that, you know, and, and uh, anyone in the hospital can look at that. But, um, but what, to me, what we need to do is look at downstream consequences of this mm -hmm. sort of thing. Things like readmissions, uh, congestive heart failure, uh, reinfection, infection rates. Uh, um, you know, so downstream consequences. So would they rather just talk about this device or this drug or this, or this uh, thing is to go ahead and throw into the spreadsheet all of the, all of the downstream metrics, which need, which are going to be, uh, played to the business plan. And again, I'm going back to that business plan thing. And I'm not a business plan guy. Well, I have been a business plan guy, but I understand that the administrators are only really about the business plan. And if you're a hospital administrator, which some of you may have been or may, may be, uh, then, then, um, your primary focus is to make sure that you don't lose money. Better you make money, better you get a bonus and better you get, you don't get fired. Uh, and so, yeah. and that's for this year. Uh, so, uh, so it's more about of a short term gain and making sure that the budget works itself out. Uh, but if you can go to that, that person's boss and say, okay, here's the downstream consequences. And we look at your 850 bed hospital and we look at the downstream consequences of, of a 10% readmission rate, a 20% urinary tract infection rate, a 20% uh, uh, congestive heart failure rate after, after cardiac intervention. Um, and what that's going to cost you, you know, the average congestive heart failure patient or the average UTI patient, what that's going to cost you in terms of millions of dollars, then that starts to be a really compelling argument. And I think it's more about downstream consequences and less about short-term game. Short-term game is stuff that we can all look at in two seconds and, and see what's what's better. Right, great. So uh, I'm, I'm going to take my shot at uh, being a better interviewer than Katie Couric. So uh, <laughs> let us know at the end. But uh, given your experience and your insight, now uh, as a provider, or as a you know, physician, as well as a, uh, an administrator. And now you're advising companies or a couple of companies on them, how to grow and that sort of thing. How was your marketing effort 
or how is the marketing effort for the companies that you're advising different than their competitors based on your unique knowledge of what you'd want to be receiving on the other side? Good question. But before I answer it, I'll have to say, you know, Barbara worked in University of Virginia and I'm from yeah. University and Katie Kirk is from University yeah. of Virginia. Katie is too, yes. So, so that's unfair then. Okay, but I'm just, I'll go back and score And then, and then at, at commercial break, Katie asked me uh, about her veins and whether they were in good shape or not. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I was dying to operate on Katie Kirk's veins, but I didn't. <laughs> but, uh, but you don't have to show me your legs, though. I think uh, they're not very nice. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so the, uh, so the question about how do you, uh, you know, from from the marketing point of view, how do, how do we approach things differently than um, uh, than other companies coming in the door? And and um, I guess that's is a difficult question to answer. You know, it's, um, uh, in addition to the business plan that I was just talking about and downstream consequences and what the long term financial benefits were going to look like, which is of course very important. Um, uh, it's it's. Uh, to build the alliances with the key opinion leaders uh, within the hospital system and within the specialty. So if, if Dr. So-and-so, who's the president of the American College of Physicians, says, hey, this is a, this is, AI is a really good place to be right now in terms of predicting, projecting a congestive heart failure, that's hugely, um, uh, important. So rather than stick with, say, the inventors or the founders or the engineers that built, that built, uh, what they're trying to sell is to go ahead and get the, uh, the key opinion leader physicians that are on a national level, not just within the hospital, to to be able to say, you know, this is something that's going to that's going to be revolutionary in the treatment of your patients, and therefore to save you guys money, uh, and not just come and not just come in through the procurement guy and say, hey, we got something, it's ten percent cheaper than than the other guy, um, so why don't you buy ours instead of theirs? Um, it's a hard, it's, it's a hard, it's like an aircraft carrier. It's just hard to turn that around. Everyone's uh, in the hospital is used to uh, product A, and so to sell them, well, product B is ten percent cheaper. It's not a selling point. You know, it's going to there's going to be a tremendous amount of resistance. So it's really it's really going to be turning that aircraft carrier around with key, big key opinion leaders and a business plan that goes with it. Mm-hmm. So, how have you seen the change? And I guess what are you hearing? What are your perspectives on it? Because I, I can't imagine it was enlightening by any way, but the change from when you first started in practice, when I'm sure you had a lot more leeway, a lot more influence over nearly all the devices that you used in some capacity and new products and new technologies you want to bring in versus where it is today and that process to get those in. I'm sure it's changed starkly from what it was. I mean, that's, yeah. yeah. Um, so I started practices in 90 uh, and um and that was still prior to DRGs. Uh, so it was the hospitals were still getting paid on a per diem basis and they were getting paid on a charge basis. So you submit a charge, it just got paid, whatever. So the doctor's fee, the, 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 the hospital fee, the device fee, it just got paid, you know, and maybe if you had a great insurance plan, it got paid at a hundred percent and a lesser insurance plan, it got paid at 70%. And that was a really inefficient way of doing things, right? Cause we put people in the hospital for 10 days prior to their heart bypass, just cause we could, you know, just cause we knew where they were and we could get all the tests readily and it got reimbursed by the insurance companies. That was a horrible system really uh, for public health. Um, so that changed, but it changed dramatically. And also we didn't, I mean, what people, don't tend to realize is we didn't have another option. So we didn't have outpatient testing. There was none. I mean, only testing was that inpatient. 
not even blood tests. I mean, well, you could get a blood test outpatient. That was about it. But you couldn't get, you know, you couldn't get any any sort of uh, uh, CAT scan or anything like that. So, um, so that's changed. It has changed dramatically. Um, uh, so, in terms of how uh, things have, I, I'm sorry, I forgot the first part of the just, uh, just your influence over bringing in uh, the products yeah, yeah. that you want to work with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so now, uh, when I was uh, working at NYU. Uh, so again, I would go back to the business model. So the way I would work that out, which is I, I would go to uh, administration and say, listen, we have an opportunity uh, in cardiovascular disease to um, bring in a platform of cardiovascular devices and at a tremendous discount to the hospital. If, we, if we're willing to go all the way from pacemaker to uh, uh, defibrillator to aortic device to stents to catheters uh, on a single uh, platform, we could be get up to a, a 30 or 40% discount uh, to the market just by bringing that in. Uh, so if you're willing to do that, if, if we're willing to do that as doctors and we're all willing to say, fine, we're on board or we're not willing to do that. But what we would be willing to do is if we think the quality's equivalent, we're willing to make the mindset change and also the, the touch and feel change because it doesn't all look the same and feel the same. Um, uh, but what we want from that 30% discount that we're getting uh, at the top line is we want half of that back to our uh, cardiovascular institute. So that's something they want to listen to is like, hey, if you if you can get all your doctors on board and say we'll only use uh, company B's device devices as long as we think they're safe and equivalent and all that sort of thing and we're not going to hurt patients, then we will give you half of our savings back to your division, and then we can reinvest that into whatever we want, whether it's going to be. Uh, human resources, you know, hiring more people, whether it's going to be research projects, whether it's going to be starting up a basic science research lab. So that's what I was, what I was focused on and actually was able to accomplish. Uh, and that was a, a very effective way of, um, of getting the hospital administrators to agree uh, to, to go ahead and, and um, you know, everyone's got to win. That's the big thing. I mean, we know this, you guys are all business, most of your business people, um, but you know, in business, everyone's got to win. And, so what, uh, what is that? What does that say for the little guy, right? I mean, what you just referenced—that that suits the Medtronics, the Abbotts, the J and Js of the world. If you're a little guy trying to break in with your defibrillator, and that's the only product you have, how do you break in? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, her. Of it. I got you, Katie. <laughs> yeah, I beat her. <laughs> um, uh, in theory, you shouldn't be able to break in. You know, in theory, you, you should. You know, there should. You should not be able to offer those same discounts. Uh, so, because there's going to be economy of scale in terms of sales. You know, feet on the ground inside the hospital. If they can sell all those devices at once rather than one device, uh, there's going to be a huge economy of scale. So, you shouldn't be able to break into the big, uh, big user hospital systems. And then it's going to be, uh, it's going to be breaking into the small hospital systems. And then the the other areas which are so big right now are the outpatient. Uh, centers uh, outside the hospitals. And so there, there's a global, typically there's a global reimbursement for everything. So that includes your, uh, your, your surgery, your anesthesia. I know you guys all know this, but for the, for the purpose of the webcast, uh, you know, the, the device itself, uh, any complications, you're going to get a global reimbursement piece. And so uh, at that point, you can, you can break in to those, um, to those places by just coming in. So those places don't have enough volume to be able to get those big volume discounts that the hospitals get. So they're not going to be offered those deals. 
And there you can break in by just offering better service. If you have a great device, offering better service, and getting to every one of those and delivering a great device with great backup. And that's another thing that most companies don't overlook. They're pretty good about that. They do, they do provide great customer service, great backup. They want to be there for every case or, you know, they want to be there all the time. They want to be available 24 hours. Um, and that's really a big thing. And that does ha- happen in the hospital side as well, but you're not going to get the volume discounts. So I think it's breaking in at the, at the small level, lots of small uh, facilities rather than one or, or so, 10 large facilities. Mark, I'd like to maybe take the question with a little different spin too, because you mentioned earlier right, about finding those partnerships, right? If you're, if you're an innovative company, right? If you're that smaller company, you've probably done something that's extremely innovative. Uh, and I'm curious because you've worked with some innovators, you've worked with uh, some startups. How about investors, are, are you know because they they need the the capital as well and in this environment are you finding that investors have the appetite for the patience that that might take uh the patience in terms of waiting or the patience the- that to, to get things to commercialization i should say well you can just ask elizabeth holmes right yeah, right. <laughs> you know where to find her. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so, um, well, yeah, there's been a really mixed bag. I mean, some guys are really in it for the long haul. You know, they're, they're making lots of, lots of investments in lots of different uh, sectors of healthcare. And they realize that not all of them are going to hit. And some of them are going to hit, and some of them may hit in three years, and some may hit in 15 years. So, uh, and other guys just want to make like, Hey, show me a three X. And if I get it within a year, I'm okay with that. Uh, so, so I think that, um, and I have a brother who's in uh, med tech, uh, venture capital. So I talked with him a lot about this. Uh, and he's and also a trained physician, trained orthopedist. Um, uh, but left that 25 years ago to go into uh, the finance side. And, uh, um, and so it's, it's a, it's a pretty mixed bag. And, and that's, and I, 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 sorry, I'm not answering the question well, but, um, but you know, he talks about his company making VC investments, and he says, "Look, we're we're betting on stuff that's going to cure can that has a one in a million chance of curing ca- cancer in fifteen years." But we're our but our our piece of that is so big, like we're I'm, I'm going to be the richest man in the world if that happens, mm-hmm. and it's probably it's a one in a million chance going to happen. On the other hand, I'm looking at phase three stuff that's uh, that's coming around the bend that's going to go that's going to be commercialized in the next six months. And I'm getting a two or three X on that, but it's like a hundred percent chance I'm getting my two or three X on that. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, so it's, it's, um, it's very variable, mm-hmm. you know, and I think it's, and actually according to him, and this is not firsthand, again, it's according to him that uh, pharma is much more remunerative than devices in his mind. So he doesn't typically invest in devices. He's typically doing pharma mm-hmm. just in yeah. terms of multiples. Yeah, what's, what's the role of the KOL uh, in terms of driving new adoption today versus five, 10 years ago? Um, I think it's bigger now. Uh, yeah, because, because, um, in, in the, in the, um, old days, so to speak, five or 10 years ago, um, that, you know, the company rep would come in and if it was someone you got along with and, and felt like they had a half a brain and, and you could exchange ideas and, and they were really interested in, you've really felt confident they were interested in patient outcomes and patient care. 
then you built a bridge with that person and, and you felt like this, this person is going to make my patients do better. And, uh, and I like, I like this person. I like spending time mm -hmm. with this person, you know, and, and now um, you have to pass through so many other hoops, you know, as we were talking about before with Barbara, who, whose business this is, uh, you know, that it, it has to be some sort of a bigger metric. You have to be able to go to your um, hospital administrators and say, Hey, KOL, who's the president of the American, who's the president of the AMA says, this is uh this is really the way to go and it's and it's gonna and again um, marrying that with the business plan uh then starts to be really compelling for the decision makers it used to be the doctors were the decision makers and now that the doctors are no longer the decision makers um it has to be a way of uh, convincing administrators that this is a smart decision even if it turns out being the wrong decision they had good data to make that decision mm -hmm. yeah yeah yeah, data is is the gold standard, not eggs, but data is the gold standard that we really live by. And, you know, now with you covered the AI and a variety of those things, the data, it, you have to just be able to analyze it and make sure that it's, you know, accurate and things. But you make such great points because it's more of a of a holistic approach with different um, personas weighing in on decisions and things in the provider organizations. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So with that, uh, because we could talk to you all day, Mark, uh, the yeah, insight's yeah. been fantastic, but I think what we're going to try to do is try to wind it down just out of respect for time. Yeah. Um, so uh, what I'll do is ask everybody to kind of give a little bit of perspective uh, on their discussion today. Any final thoughts, Mark, we'll let you go last. And I'd also like you to talk to a little bit about the V symposium. Uh, as well, and providing the audience with some information on that. So uh, why don't we start? Uh, Scott, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Um, I think great, great conversation. I mean, this has been fantastic. Thank you for your time, uh, Mark. It's always nice to to hear uh, your insights. I think the um, my biggest takeaway from this is how you view, because uh, our audience are people that have innovative technologies or trying to figure out how do they grow their company and drive better patient outcomes with whatever technology they have in their hands. And the thing that I heard from you that feels almost like water for a fish is the idea of you need to have the business plan, you need to have clinical rigor, and you need to do the things that um, I would say the rest of us have been arguing to the audience for, for years now, is this idea that you need to have a complete package. And if I'm listening, and uh, we all know, by the way, just so you know, my mom is our biggest downloader. So you should probably know that. <laughs> but she's actually visiting in town today. So she's going to hear it. She's hearing it live. Um, <laughs> so sorry, team. Uh, listen volumes will be down. But but I think, uh, kidding aside, the reality is it, we really need to make sure that we've got a tight message as to the value of what these technologies can do, not just from a clinical perspective, but also financially and operationally to be able to see the adoption that folks are hoping to you know, to be able to drive value for, for patients. So thank you for your time. This has been really insightful. That's great. Thanks, Scott. Mm -hmm. Great. Tom? Tom? I think he's frozen there. Frozen. He's frozen. Right. We'll go to Mike. You muted, Mike. Muted, You're muted. Mike. <laughs> you think we've done this before, Mark. This is, <laughs> this is not our first time, I promise. <laughs> You're still sorry there. about that. There I am. I'm sorry about that. Uh, fascinating conversation, Doctor. Thank you so much. I think my fast uh, takeaways from this uh, were number one: your comment about saving ten percent. Don't waste my time. Mm 
-hmm. right? If it's just going to save 10%, I got to go through all this training and switching costs, then you're probably barking up the wrong tree right now. So for those you know companies that are listening and that's your value proposition, I think that's a wake-up call. I also think what's a wake-up call is the fact that if you're solving the major problem right now, which is staffing and time and clinical expertise, and you can provide innovation that solves or helps with those issues, you're in a really good spot right now. So thank you very much, doctor. Thank you. Tom? Yeah, I'd like to echo, uh, Mark. First of all, thank you for your time and preparation. I think your insights were fantastic today. And for me, it, it seems like, you know, it's it's a confusing world out there for everybody, right? So if you're the company, you've got to take those extra steps to provide the things that are going to help mitigate risk for the end user, right? So make sure that you've done your homework there and then um, really make your case as succinct and direct as possible because the folks on the other end don't have a lot of time to sort through it, right? So you really have to have that narrow focused. So that's that's one of my takeaways today. Great. And Barbara. Thanks, Tom. Hello, it's me. Um, thanks, uh, Dr. Adelman. This has been great. And, and uh, I appreciate all your comments, but I think the most important thing is You've, you've validated what we've been hearing about, reading about, trying to sort of say the message to the med tech industry in general, but um, what's really going on. And, and usually we try to leave a little wisdom uh, with our listeners. And, and I think the thing of it is, is that we've been trying to say, and you just validated it, is get to know what situation the provider organization is before you call on them so that they understand. So you've provided more of an outline of the different things that are affecting them that they should be asking. So that way they can have a plan in place. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Love it. Uh, and then I just have two points. First of all, uh, Diane Sawyer and Katie Curry clearly have nothing on my journalistic integrity. <laughs> that I, I asked you a question that you had to think about. So, uh, so I expect NBC to be calling me anytime now. Uh, <laughs> the second one was the uh, enhanced importance of the KOL today. Um, I thought that was really provocative uh, in, in that perspective, uh, because I think it's I think it's something that's overlooked by a number of companies. Mm -hmm. I think the big companies do that very well. Uh, I think the small companies tend to try to go to where it's convenient um, and comfortable and not really trying to understand how they can enhance their positioning by aligning themselves with a true thought leader. So I thought that was really provocative. And, and so with that, Mark, thank you so much. We're going to give you a chance to get your final thoughts as well as providing some insight on the V Symposium. But we really appreciate your time and insight. Oh, yeah, no, I, I had a really great time. Uh, you guys had some really wonderful questions. And and uh, it's, it's great to it's great to uh, exchange ideas with people that are really experts in their field. So thank you guys for uh, for thinking about all this and, and really coming up with some thoughtful questions and stumping me, uh, you know, part of the time. I usually I'm not at a loss for words. Um, uh, but, but to your point, uh, Skinner, uh, I, I was amazed to find out that one of the big aortic companies uh, that we all know, whose name we all know, their medical director is a pediatrician. And I'm think, I was just thinking, like, you guys missed it. You know, and, and I have not reached out to him recently. I, I, I mean, I have an interaction with him once in a while. But next time I speak with him, I'm just like, 
Really? Like, you know, you got to have, you got to have an aortic KOL to, to be your medical director. Um, so to your point, but, but, um, uh, you know, just in summary, it's, uh, uh, I think I've said it, it's just been a really, um, uh, fun, fun time with you guys. Uh, it's really, it's really nice to, to hear that what, what you guys are thinking about too, because that informs me, you know, when I'm talking to other clients, uh, that, you know, and I hear these sort of questions. I go, well, I was just on this, uh, this podcast and, and then somebody asked a really similar question and this is, this is how we addressed it. So thank you guys. Um, in terms of the V symposium, um, probably not directly. Uh, I don't want to spend too much advertising time on that, but I chair, I co-chair this, uh, big symposium of 5,000 uh, vascular people, uh, in New York every year and it'll be in every November. Uh, but it's really very, it's all that cardiovascular centric. And so, um, it's, it's, uh, most people that are in the space already know about it. So I will uh, leave it there and not, uh, not use the last half hour, uh, talking about how great our conference is. <laughs> uh, thank you guys. And I'm happy to come back, uh, you know, if other questions come up. Definitely be happy to great. have you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Dr. Adelman and the med experts for a great conversation. We learned that financial difficulties are having staffing implications, how reimbursement plays a role in the income gaps, that AI is already helping cut down on staffing costs, and that the C-suite wants to see the value on the balance sheet as a primary factor in purchasing. Thank you again, Dr. Adelman, for joining us this week. If you haven't already, Go listen to last week's podcast with Dr. Lewis Perkins and remember to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode of the MedTech Business Academy.